This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Leslie Bloom. Leslie is an LA-based journalist and historian, and she joined me to talk about her new book, Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up and the reporter who revealed it to the world. And I'm really delighted to have with me New York native and uh, LA-based journalist and historian Leslie Bloom, who has just released a book called Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up and the reporter who revealed it to the world. And um, if you had been paying attention to the news, you would have noticed the uh, discussions and obviously commemorations around the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with uh, the US military dropping atomic bombs on those two cities in Japan during World War II. And we're going to be talking about Leslie's book. And I really am so pleased to welcome Leslie now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It must have been a pretty intense period to be researching something that has such grave content and obviously pretty graphic detail as well. How did you, as a a historian and journalist, first come across this story and what drove you to pursue it? Well, yeah, it was an incredibly intense few years, um, both for me and for researchers who were working with me. And the research for the book um, ultimately ended up being taking place in three continents and four languages. I knew that I wanted my next nonfiction book to be a newsroom narrative because, you know, here in the States, our free press has been under unprecedented assault. And I really wanted to find a historical newsroom story that really would drive home to readers the extreme importance of investigative reporting uh, in holding the powerful to account. And I also knew that I wanted it to be a World War II story because I haven't just have a historical affinity for that period of time. I came to Hersey's story a bit circuitously, but um, when I did come across it and I realized that um, nobody had told it before, I knew that I needed to be the one to tell it. Mm. And we're talking about a a journalist, John Hersey, who published a a really famous piece in the New Yorker magazine in its August 31st, 1946 issue titled Hiroshima. And um, I personally hadn't come across it. But that said, I hadn't really covered um, Japan and and the kind of atomic bombings of Japan all that much. But I wonder in terms of American culture and understandings of World War II and also your press culture, is John Hersey a a well-known and revered figure in American life? I think, well, look, just for some, for some background for your mm-hmm. listeners, the, the, um, what Hersey did was uh, he, he got in on the ground in Hiroshima um, almost a year after the bombings, and there had been quite a bit of suppression about the reality of the human toll of the bombs by the U.S. government and occupation forces. Um, you know, other reporters had tried with varying degrees of success to get the true story out about, you know, this being the bomb that continued to keep on killing long after detonation. But then after, you know, the organization, the, the occupation forces really organized themselves, you know, the reporting was was really suppressed. Hersey got in, he interviewed survivors, his blast survivors on the ground and revealed the truth to the world. Now, look, when the, when the article came out in 1946, it was hugely influential. I mean, it was syndicated in newspapers across America and around the world. And Hersey was one of, uh, there was a celebrity survey that took place um, later that year, and he could have cared less about celebrity, but he was one of the top ranked global celebrities after that fact. I would say that, you know, for generations after after that, um, he was, you know, a a hugely well-known figure. Um, but he also more or less left journalism. I, you know, this it, re- reporting and releasing Hiroshima had a huge effect on him. He preferred fiction after that. And he began to fade from memory. He also was totally just hated publicity. He, he was a publicist's nightmare, but, you know, wouldn't do it, only gave a handful of big interviews. Um, and so even though his Hiroshima, which was uh, made into a book also and is still read widely, you know, carries on, he is a lesser known figure today. And I felt that it was an extremely important period of time to bring him back to the public Mm. consciousness. I'm glad you did, because it seems like such a really worthy story to tell. And as you say, very timely, given the um, undermining and underinvestment in investigative reporting. Certainly, I can say that's the case in Australia as well. 
I want to pick up on the start of the story and how you set things up and discuss how Americans were experiencing World War II and also how they perceived the Japanese. And I wonder, obviously, in American history in World War II, there would be no doubt a focus on the particular experiences that affected American troops. And there seems to be Pearl Harbor being one of those, um, something that really does stick in the minds of many people, but of course, I presume also Americans. And I wonder if you could share with us that general sentiment and feeling toward the Japanese towards the end of World War II in the period that we're discussing just prior to the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Well, I mean, there was enormous rage at the at the Japanese in America, you know, I mean, still, you know, outsized rage about Pearl Harbor, about um, Japanese atrocities in China and in the Philippines, um, Japanese treatment of American POWs. And, you know, John Hersey never downplayed any of that in his reporting. And John Hersey himself had been um, a World War II reporter who had covered the Pacific theater. I mean, he himself... Uh, had covered a uh, battle between the Japanese and the Americans and uh, was stunned by what he saw as the, the tenacity of Japanese soldiers. Um, and many of his colleagues, you know, reported back, you know, as they were covering Okinawa, you know, the, the bloodiness of the battles. And so, you know, Americans were not only outraged by atrocities and by the surprise attack on them, but, you know, also just horrified at the prospect of a continued war. I mean, the war in Europe had been um, over for months, you know, by the time of August 1945, and the fatigue was so total, and they were being told that a uh, land invasion would cost a million American lives. And so when when the bomb was, had been successfully tested and President Truman green-lighted the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, well, actually, which was a secondary target, but green-lighted uh, green the, the dropping of the bomb on Japan. There was joy and um, a, a, a sense of pure, righteous vengeance as well when, when the, the city was decimated. Yeah, and um, in terms of John Hersey himself, I know you quote him in the book as saying that he, he regretted his own kind of coloured view of what the Japanese were and that they perhaps were less than human in the way that they had behaved. And no doubt a lot of people have heard of the atrocities committed by the Japanese military and soldiers throughout World War II. So it's not something that um, was solely from John Hersey. It was certainly even um, experienced within Australia as well with the Australian soldiers also experiencing and having similar viewpoints. But I, I'm interested about that and how he, even as a reporter, had a different view. Well, I mean, he's he's such an interesting person because you know, on the one hand, he he later confessed that he you know had very racist views towards the Japanese, also, and referred to them as an animalistic enemy. His quote, not mine, in some of his reporting, and um, you know, in in another uh, bit of reporting, referred to them as a swarm of intelligent animals. He was not the only person who was using language like this and had this viewpoint. I mean, a lot of reporters who were covering it, you know, had been as steeped as everybody in the, you know, peril, the yellow peril propaganda that had really been put into place to dehumanize the hell out of, out of this enemy that had attacked America from the East. And, you know, but for Hersey, you know, he was a seasoned war reporter um, by the time he got into Hiroshima, and uh, he had seen the worst in human nature in war theaters around the world, from, you know, combat to concentration camps. And he recognized early, even, even before the war had ended, that what was enabling this mass slaughter, and World War II remains the deadliest conflict in human history, what was enabling all of that was dehumanization. And he forced himself to think, even when he was, you know, with Marines covering a, a fight between them and the Japanese, the snipers that were, were, were shooting at them, he said he hated the idea of the enemy, but he he made himself also think about the individual who was shooting at him. You know, had he been conscripted? Was he a father? Was he a son? You know, what were the private dreams that had been, you know, what had he been robbed of by being conscripted to be in the war? He said, you know, I hated the idea of the enemy, but I did not hate this individual. And after we entered the atomic age, he just really strongly started to feel that the only chance 
humanity had at surviving is if humans began to see the humanity in other humans. Um, again, he said, even including our quote, most misled enemies, end quote. Um, and it was just, it was an extraordinary personal reckoning, I feel, and not one that many people would be capable of. Yeah, I, I feel like you would think that people might be able to do that upon years of reflection, but it's harder when you're in the moment reporting on the front line to have that level of self-reflection and deep examination of one's own personal views and biases. But I don't know, Amy. I mean, listen, I was really curious ahead of time, how were people going to react to fallout? Now, my book is not about the decision to drop the bombs. It is not about, you know, the morality of it or any, any such thing. It's really a, just about how the story of the bombings were, were, were presented to the American public and how much was covered up and what it took to get the real story out. It's a journalism story. But I was still interested to see, you know, how many people still passionately take the point of view that the Japanese got what they deserved and, um, you know, the, see how much dehumanization still plays in the perception of of Hiroshima. And, you know, I published a story, uh, an, an op-ed essay earlier this week in the Wall Street Journal, and just reading the comments in it, my, the story was literally about this is how one reporter tried to get people to see the humanity in each other again. And it was all, you know, most of the, the comments were, you know, the Japs got what they deserved. You know, they started it, they can burn in hell. I mean, it was shocking how few people to this day have changed their minds and will not see, um, you know, the human civilian figures in Hiroshima. I mean, Hiroshima's mm. uh, casualties were 90% civilian, it's been estimated. And, you know, people still can't, can't see that, you know, perhaps, you know, the eight month old infant in Hersey's Hiroshima might not have been responsible for atrocities and might not have, you know, been involved in, you know, dropping and attacking Pearl Harbor. It's been very, it shouldn't be as surprising as, as, as it is, but it has been anyway. Yeah. I find that pretty eye opening. but let's get to that story because it is such a really disturbing one. And, and also one that I guess is in a way, not that surprising looking from where we are now in the 21st century and seeing how um, the American government approached the Marshall Islands particularly um, is something that I have looked into more and, and the way that they were downplaying the effects of what those bombings had on those civilian populations. But in your introduction, you talk about the kind of impact that these bombs had, they dropped a nearly 10,000 pound uranium bomb called Little Boy on Hiroshima, which was August the 6th, 1945. And then of course, another bomb, which I, I think was called Fat Man. Um, yeah. And that was on Nagasaki three days later on the 9th of August. And you write about the impact of, of it in terms of death toll. Um, as an example, the city of Hiroshima estimated that more than 42,000 civilians had died from the bombing. But within a year, that estimate rose to 100,000 and has um, risen since to approximately 280,000 by the end of 1945. But as you say, the exact number isn't really known. And it's interesting it seems like a really important point because the after effects of radiation are very much an ongoing long-term thing. Therefore, the, the government's clamping down on press, certainly in that area, and, and trying to reduce the, the knowledge of those kind of after effects clearly has real-life consequences. Well, I mean, it's interesting that the, you know, the American government didn't really want Americans to know about the radiological long-term effects of the bombs, but they certainly wanted to know, you know, what, what um, yeah. the effects were, you know, that the bombs, um, and, and so it, 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 as part of, you know, the occupation press corps, they dispatched, you know, doctors uh, as part of the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission to almost study involuntary blast survivors to see how the radiation was affecting their bodies. Was it going to create sterility? You know, how was it going to affect the bones? How was it going to affect the tissues? Um, and don't forget, you know, they, the government felt they, they had quickly sent in an assessment team immediately upon occupation to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And they concluded that that most of the radiation had gone back up into the atmosphere because of height of detonation. But, you know, they still didn't know with 100% with certainty that that was true. And they were about to put 
many thousands of their own occupation troops into the atomic cities. And, you know, many of the, they call them the, the atomic vets, many um, vets of those, of, you know, the occupation forces, you know, reported uh, having cancer and, you know, are very convinced that their uh, later in life ailments came from, um, from being, from exposures during that time on the ground. So we've been living with atomic weapons now for 75 years and, but you know, it cannot be overstated enough that these were then experimental mega weapons and the inventors of these weapons did not know the full effects of them. I mean, when they first tested the first one, they thought there was the possibility that they might be about to incinerate the Earth's atmosphere and end life on Earth. I mean, luckily that didn't happen, but that's, that shows you, you know, where they were um, in terms of their bank of knowledge about the weapons. Yeah, it's really shocking to think that they're using these weapons of war with no understanding, really, no surety at least, of how it's going to play out. And certainly you mentioned the U.S. troops being brought in. And of course, there were also other American civilians and journalists who were there and were actually invited by the U.S. military to witness the situation. And I was really interested to read about that kind of press junket that the U.S. military put together to have them report on the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombings, but certainly to manage it, to make sure that what they had wanted people to think of the the bombings and the after effects were actually what these reporters reported. And um, I wonder if you could share that trip and how that played out for the US. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if we're talking about the same junket, the one to the Trinity site of testing, that was an astonishing junket. Because meanwhile, while the occupation forces in Japan are busy, they're enacting a press code so the Japanese can't even mention Hiroshima in poetry, much less a press report. They're suppressing the occupation press corps that is coming in with the occupying forces. So while they're on that end, they are you know, making sure that you know, the narrative isn't coming out of Japan. In the meantime, um, General Leslie Groves and uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, you know, who are two principals of the Manhattan Project, take a junket of reporters to the uh, Trinity site, the testing site in New Mexico, where the first atomic bomb uh, was successfully detonated on July 16th of that year. And you know, they the the point that they're trying to to make in bringing these reporters is, you know, there's nothing to see here. You know, we're all we're all good. You know, meanwhile, you know, the sand around ground zero has turned to, to green glass from the extremity of the heat. You know, animals for miles around, herds of animals have died agonizing deaths. And, you know, also ironically, you know, the Trinity site was far more contaminated than Hiroshima and Nagasaki because they had detonated the, the bomb so close to the ground um, that the radiation was still uh, very much present. So they had this 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 crew of you know two a two dozen reporters trotting around and they wear you know protective little white booties even though there's not supposed to be any lingering radiation and you know the Groves says you know there's see there's nothing to see here everything is totally fine do you see any radiation I don't see any radiation you could live here forever and then you know the attention turns to the conversation with reporters turns to Japan at that moment. And um, you know, reporters you know, who are warily convinced by by this, they in turn report, well, if everything is fine here, you know, everything that's coming out of Tokyo must be quote Tokyo tales. You know, the Japanese, you know, initial Japanese reports that people people were dying horribly of some sinister, you know, radiological affliction. It was all just propaganda because you know they're trying to get, you know curry sympathy now that they're you know defeated and. It was amazing how many reporters really did run with the official narrative, including the New York Times, which is, you know, considered to be the paper of record in this country. And you do cover the New York Times and how they responded to the bombings in Japan. And I was really interested in those early reporters that were kind of the first to report on the bombings before John Hersey did so in a very different way. And you were talking about a um, former United Press journalist, Leslie Nakashima, who had both American and Japanese citizenship and um, gave a, a kind of eyewitness account saying that 
the city had vanished, not a single building had been left standing intact. And it was interesting to see the way that the New York Times responded to those early reports from the American Japanese journalist. And then, of course, there were two other journalists who who got in there on the ground as well, one Australian in particular. I wonder if you could share with us those early reporters who really laid the ground for people to think there was something more to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, even if, uh, you know, the U.S. didn't want the story told, the reporters, you know, some of the reporters who were coming in with the Occupation Press Corps, they really wanted to tell the story because it was the hugest scoop of not just the war, but of modern times. Because, you know, if you're, talk- if you're talking about a bomb that is equivalent to 20,000 tons of TNT, even before the full radiological effects were known, you know, these these war correspondents would have known that well, humanity has actually just after, you know, many centuries of contriving increasingly horrible warfare methods um, has just invented the means with which to destroy itself. And getting in on the ground and seeing, you know, one of the two cities that had been um, attacked by these weapons was a huge journalistic scoop. And that might sound crass, but it's just the way that it was. I mean, there were a handful of people who wanted to tell that story first to the world. Leslie Nakashima, who you mentioned, um, had American and Japanese citizenship. He had gotten stranded in Tokyo during the war. He was the first reporter with a... um, uh, an affiliation with a, a foreign media outlet got in and you know he did do the reporting that you uh, mentioned and he filed a UP report, United Press report, a wire report that stated what you had said, you know, the city had been eviscerated, but he also commented that there was, you know, a subsequent affliction that was killing off blast survivors. And his report is interesting because it shows at that stage, which is, you know, uh, August 25th, I think, how much confusion there remained about what exactly the bombs were. Doctors had no idea how to treat, um, you know, the radiation poisoning. They didn't quite understand what it what it was yet. They thought maybe still that the bombs had given off some kind of gas, which is a very World War One way to look at it. You know, they say that World War One was the chemists' war and World War Two was the physicists' war, but people just didn't understand yet, you know, about radiation and the effect on the human body. So weirdly, the New York Times only ran a really abbreviated version of Leslie Nakashima's uh, UP story, which it was really shocking. Um, and they omitted all um, mention of radiation from his, his report. It was quite truncated. Then uh, a, few, a, a few days later, uh, a gentleman named Wilford Burchett, Australian, who's filing for the London Daily Express, um, who's one of my favorite characters among the occupation press corps. He gets in, he's coming in with Marines, and there's no way that he's going to be corralled by his his public relations minders in the in the occupation forces. And he, you know, th- despite the clampdown on the press, he's ostensibly there to um, cover the surrender ceremony. But when his public relations minder came to get him um, from his his barracks or from you know wherever he was being stored by the by his minders, then he feigned a, a horrific case of diarrhea, um, which I thought was very, um, very resourceful of him. And of course, the public relations officer says, okay, you do you, you stay here. We'll go to the surrender ceremony. Sorry, you're going to miss it. And, you know, as soon as the coast is clear, he, he makes his way to Hiroshima. And it's a terrifying journey for him. Somehow, um, the train station, the train line is still intact going into the, the station there. He's worried for his life, you know, on, on this crowded train full of Japanese every moment as he's on his way down there. And he gets into the city and it's just been obliterated. Um, he visits hospitals and is horrified by what he sees. And he is the one who gets the true blockbuster first story out. Sitting there at ground zero, on a piece of, you know, just a, a rock of rubble, he types out his report, which he calls the atomic plague. And he managed somehow, because, you know, everything was still chaotic with, you know, the occupation forces coming in and setting up shop. He managed somehow to get his report filed over to his editors in London by Morse code um, out of Hiroshima initially. And that report runs and the world is horrified. You know, what are these new bombs? And at that moment, the uh, occupation official, officials realized we've got to wrap this up really quickly. That's when you start to see the real suppression take place. Luckily for them, unluckily for the world, um, you know, there was one other 
reporter who had, through a similar, similarly spirited subterfuge, had managed to give his public relations minders the slip. Um, his name was George Weller. He was reporting for the Chicago Daily News, and he hated MacArthur's minders and censors. He said, I was not going to be stifled. And he managed to get away from the base that he was on, you know, with a boat under the cloak of darkness. He took four trains to Nagasaki. He impersonated an American officer to get Japanese officers to, to work with him and paved the way for him to do his reporting. I mean, he was like a, you know, a madman um, in the best possible way. But unfortunately, by the time he got his 10,000 word report, you know, up to a colleague in Tokyo to try to get it out of the country the way that Burchett had gotten his report out. The military occupation forces appear to have wised up and his report was intercepted and quote unquote lost. It's amazing really to hear those stories and the means and methods they went to to actually get in there. I'm not surprised given the resourcefulness of journalists and the the kind of characteristics one needs to be a journalist, a good journalist. It was shocking reading the article and what you describe Birchett reporting back, particularly the fact that their hair was falling out, they were bleeding from their ears, noses and mouths, helpless doctors were administering vitamin A injections only to see their patient's flesh rot away from the injection holes. And in every case, the victim died, Birchett reported. So there's so many really graphic and important details and facts of the matter that clearly were very much not understood by not only the American public, but the global public. Um, Of course, the locals in Japan would have started to, to understand what was going on. But it's interesting, those early journalists, and you were talking about in the book, the kind of contempt they had for the prearranged American journalists who were invited by the American government and and the kind of way that they viewed their fellow journalists, those who had jumped on that gravy train. Yeah, they were they were not big fans of junket reporters. And, you know, the United States had an odd relationship with the story of the bomb at first, because on one hand, you know, they want to cover up what, you know, the atrocity aspect of it. And, you know, they were already government officials were already very concerned about the um, American reputation, even after the firebombing of Tokyo earlier that year. And then, you know, the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, said at one point, you know, that he was worried that the country would, quote, get the reputation for outdoing Hitler at atrocities. You know, so there's there's a real incentive for them to cover up, you know, this unfolding story of the human cost. But on the other hand, you know, they want to advertise the bomb a little bit too. They have the nuclear monopoly and they want their, their, their friends, their enemies and their frenemies, i.e. the Soviets, to, to know what they've got. So they want to showcase a little bit about, you know, let's say the landscape devastation. They want to show how major this mega bomb is. So at one point, you know, there was a, an Air Force junket of report hand-picked reporters which came out of Washington initially that was taken first over Europe so they could see you know the site of American bombings of cities and then taken to Hiroshima and Nagasaki so they could see the comparative destruction there and report back and you know ironically both Burchett and uh, Weller ran into this junket touring when they were in their respective cities reporting and the contempt for that, you know, for the the junket reporters who came in on very, you know, very posh military planes. Um, I think George Weller said that they looked like tourists who had come onto an island, you know, shopping for basketry, which Mm -hmm. I loved. And, you know, they, they were just, you know, you know, disgusted. These independent reporters felt that they were doing the real reporting on the ground. They were the ones in the hospitals. They were the ones who were trying to get the truth out to the world while these spoon-fed lapdog reporters, um, sorry to mix my metaphors there, were just not honoring the central tenets of journalism, including holding the powerful to account. Absolutely. It's understandable that they would feel that way, especially given their more closely understood experience of the human element and cost of this bombing. I was really interested in the story that you set up around John Hersey and then his decision uh, with his editor at the New Yorker to go to Hiroshima to decide that that was the story that he would pursue, not actually really knowing what angle he would yet be taking. Um, But one quote stood out in that meeting, that discussion, which was that he wanted to write about, quote, what happened not to buildings, but to human beings. 
It sounded yeah. like that's a really kind of important element that can be lost among the facts. And as you say in this book, that it's very hard to, when you see constant atrocity, constant death and destruction, to be affected after a while. And um, a lot of people were, you know, emotionally removed at some point with all the death and devastation. Could you share with us how John Hersey? managed to get into Japan and what his experience was like as a reporter for the New Yorker. Yeah, sure. I mean, as you know, well, we've just spent time discussing, you know, how the first ins tried to get in. I mean, it was beg, borrow and steal, you know, and, and to, to get in. And, you know, that was not going to be an option for, for John Hersey eight months after the bombings because General MacArthur's operation was very much uh, in place by then. And, you know, the the occupations near total domination of Japan was sort of impenetrable. You had to apply for clearance to get into the country. It's not like Kersey was going to, you know, sneak in in a rowboat, you know, from Guam, for God's sake. It's like you had to fly in, you had to get clearance, you had to get clearance to travel within the country. Hersey would have known how under thumb journalists were who were in the occupation press corps because a lot of his you know friends and colleagues from war reporting um, had been based in uh, Tokyo since since the earliest days of the occupation and so it wasn't he wasn't going to have the option that Burchett and and Willer had in the earliest chaotic days of the occupation and so he's lucky though because he can get in a different way and he is what I describe in the book as you know a perfect Trojan horse reporter in the sense that, you know, George Weller had been, you know, butting heads with MacArthur's censors for, for years throughout the war. And Hersey, on the other hand, was a team player uh, with, with the military throughout the war. He wrote um, glowing uh, profiles of military personnel and even a glowing biography of uh, Douglas MacArthur and his forces. Later, he wished he could take that book out of print because he said it was too adulatory, um, but uh, it's still very much in print. He even wrote that in concert with the War Department and approval of the War Department. And also, he's a commended war hero. So when he had been covering a, a battle between the Japanese and the Americans, um, he helped evacuate wounded Marines. And so he's really seen as, you know, a, a, an ally, a, you know, a media ally. And it would have made him seem less... Or, or less combative, more a more innocuous presence when he if he applied for clearance to Tokyo. So he he does this and um, he he does get clearance to come in. So they've they've the Trojan horses at the gate. Well, it's interesting the way that he goes through that U.S. military plane. He leaves Shanghai. And also his inspiration uh, from Thornton Wilder when he was reading the book The Bridge of San Luis Rey. And the lead up to entering Japan and Hiroshima was almost perfect in a way. And um, I was really interested in how when he arrived, I guess the type of approach that he had in terms of building his story and finding the right people and understanding what had really happened and keeping in mind, I believe, was this about a year later from when the bombs were dropped? It was about eight and a half months later. He got in in May of 1946. Yeah. And for people who haven't read the long form piece that he wrote about the six survivors, um, he follows them really closely. And he, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, it's reportage, but it's also a bit literary in a way and very narrative. Yeah, no, I agreed wholeheartedly. And that was that was the idea. So, you know, for Hersey, he wanted to, to get in and tell the story from the human point of view. He wanted to find, you know, a handful of blast survivors who could tell their stories of what it had been like to be six human beings, to, you know, who are among the only to ever have been on the receiving end of nuclear warfare. And he intentionally makes them, you know, really re re what we would call today relatable people, you know, regular folks, as they would say in the States. Um, you know, a, a young mother, she's a young widow with three school-age children, um, a young female clerk, a young Japanese medic, uh, a young uh, uh, minister. I mean, people who Americans could empathize with when they, they, they could put themselves in the shoes of these people when they were reading about their accounts. But that said, I mean, if you were just writing about their accounts in a journalistic point of view, Americans had zero incentive to, to, to uh, read that kind of thing because they were still, you know, very anti-Japanese. Nobody wanted to be confronted with wartime atrocity story or wartime outsized tragedy story. Now, you know, a, almost a year into peacetime, America had moved on. They were trying 
trying to shake the exhaustion of the, of the war. So Hersey had to make it unputdownable. You know, so the only way he was going to be able to do that was to make it read like a novel. And he really approached it novelistically using, you know, Thornton Wilder's book that you cited ahead of time by picking six people who knew each other and whose paths intersected on August 6, 1945, amidst the crisis. And so he, he, would, he would eventually write it up with, you know, these incredible cliffhangers among the, the various protagonists. And, um, you know, for a, a subject that is as horrific as it gets, when you are reading the article or the book version of it, you cannot put it down, which is a shocking accomplishment as a, a, on the part of a journalist. Yeah, absolutely. It is such a, a true long form piece of journalism, really, isn't it? It's, it's, um, I was looking through it to understand just how many words and I think it came to about at least 57 pages. Yeah, well, ultimately, his editors thought the story was so important and would lose its impact if they ran it in a serialized way. They, they had it take up almost the entire issue of the New York magazine, which was absolutely unprecedented. It was a, a between 30 and 31,000 words, which is an enormously long news magazine story. Um, and, you know, initially it was going to run as a four-part series, but uh, to, to his credit, her, one of Hersey's editors, William Sean, said, you know, no, it can't. We've, we have to make the splurge editorial splurge and um it will it will even make the story more sensational in the best possible way not not cheap sensationalism but it will the gesture will command further public attention yeah i'm so glad they did make that decision it sounds it sounds like it was an important one editorially and in terms of the way that um that hersey met these people it also seems quite fortuitous that a number of those people he interviewed had English-speaking backgrounds and um, and were in some cases educated in America. For example, Reverend Tanimoto, 36 years of age, um, studied in the U.S. and graduated from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And so it was interesting to hear that he had established such a, a close and immediate rapport with some of these um, Japanese people whose stories he recounts and the way that they open up to him almost immediately. I found that really interesting, that observation that you make. Well, I mean, one of the first questions for me when I knew I was going to do this book was how how did Hersey get get the interviews? Did he speak Japanese? I mean, Hersey um, had grown up the child of missionary parents in China, and I you know I knew that he spoke Mandarin, but you know the question was is did he ever pick up Japanese as well? And uh, you know, as, as you say, it turns out he he did have um, translation help, and one of his first points of contact in Hiroshima was a, a German priest who was a resident of Hiroshima who had been there the day of the bombing and um, had returned to rebuild his church, help rebuild his church and was living you know, amidst the ruins. And he spoke English, took to Hersey, gave Hersey his testimony, and then made many inroads for him within the community, including the Reverend Tanamoto, uh, American educated, who had you know, beautiful spoken English and wrote you know, quite fluently in English. Um, these two gentlemen not only became two of Hersey's six protagonists, but they also were his main introducers and his primary translators within the Blast Survivor community. And um, some of the direct quotes that you provide from the interviewees in this chapter, which is about the six survivors, I mean, they are pretty shocking, but also I feel very important for people to understand the extent and the effects of atomic bombs and nuclear weapons, especially because of the situation we currently find ourselves in. For example, Reverend Tanimoto said most of the people were naked, skin from faces and hands, arms and breasts were stripping off or hanging loose. It seemed like a procession of ghosts, red hot iron sheets and burning boards were spiraling in the air. And then later when he was dealing with the situation, trying to save people and he pulled one man into the boat and saw with horror that the skin of his hand slipped off as if it were a glove. He stated, I had no more human feelings. And I mean, that has huge impact and that's a firsthand account. But in terms of the way that Hersey then reported that firsthand account is also just so affecting 
From a journalistic point of view, because you are a journalist, of course, as well as a historian, what's your assessment of Hersey, the journalist, and if you're looking at Hiroshima as a piece of journalism, and also it's not just a piece of journalism, I guess it really is a political weapon in a way, secondarily, because of the extent to which the US government was seeking to minimise and cover up the effects to the world. What is your assessment of his piece from your perspective as a journalist? Well, I mean, it's, it's masterful. I mean, and, and you know, from, from the approach to the, to the follow through and also the choice not only to, to render it in this novelistic but excruciatingly detailed way. And it wasn't just, you know, excruciating detail about the experiences of the protagonists uh, on that day, but also in terms of his research into the bomb from available materials at that time, whether they were Japanese studies, U.S. strategic bombing surveys. I mean, his... It, it uh, incredibly detailed yet impassive factual laydown was incredibly impressive and effective. And again, even people who hadn't read it, it was all they talked about. And for him to have been able to make this so readable and and so read in such a widespread way, it testifies to the extreme adeptness. Of his journalism. Now, I mean, some of his, you know, his two editors on the story should bear some of the compliment for that. Um, his editors at the New Yorker were both newsmen to the core. They were maniacs for accuracy. Um, you know, they went through every single phrase and every single line with uh, Hersey of this book um, to make sure that it was it was accurate, that it was dispassionate. And uh, the, the result was, was completely astonishing. And, and it, you know, Hiroshima, Hersey's Hiroshima really does, um, to this day, it tops, you know, the journalism best of lists in terms of the most important or influential work of written investigative journalism ever created. And in terms of that localized response in America, you do detail that later on in the book and you talk about some of the responses and the want um, or wish to turn it into like a radio dramatization and will the rights be sold? And of Mm -hmm. course, um, Hersey already had other works. He was a Pulitzer Prize winner and had other works that had become very popular in um, Hollywood, of course. So I'm interested also in that and how not just the elite culturally in New York and beyond responded, but also um, the average Americans. Well, I mean, one of the great ironies of, of my book Fallout is that it, you know, it documents how this, this little magazine is the one that broke this huge story, right? So the New Yorker itself was a niche, sophisticated magazine, even during the war when it was mostly about war coverage, but it had been founded in the 1920s as a sophisticated humor magazine. And its founder and, and eccentric editor, Harold Ross, used to panic when, this, when the circulation would go over 300,000. He would say, you know, we must be doing something wrong. So, I mean, there was the real, uh, real danger that something like Hersey's Hiroshima would have been, you know, really confined to a certain readership. Um, but the fact is, is that it was so widely syndicated in publications across the country. I mean, every region. Um, and even if it wasn't syndicated, because you, you were only allowed to syndicate it in its entirety and people weren't allowed to excerpt it. If it wasn't syndicated, it was covered on front pages, in editorials across the country, in you know, local and major newspapers alike, re- major regional newspapers alike. So everybody, every demographic, um, every geography in this country really knew about it. It was covered on 500 radio stations in this country alone. I can't overstate what a sensation it was. It was almost as if, look, you know, looking at this coverage in the end of August of 1946, you would think that Hiroshima had happened the day before, not a year before. Yeah, and it was also interesting that you noted Albert Einstein contacted the New Yorker's publisher, mm-hmm. Raoul Fleischmann, and the quote that you give is, Mr. Hersey has given a true picture of the appalling effect on human beings subjected to the unprecedented destruction achieved by the explosion in their midst of one atomic bomb. This picture has implications for the future of mankind, which must deeply concern all responsible men and women. Do you think that that response that Einstein had, um, obviously he was you know, very well informed scientifically, but do you think that there was a response or an effect later on or even at the time in terms of 
should we be using these atomic bombs in future? Is this something that the after effects of which we can't really reconcile? Well, look, I mean, a lot of the the horrified reaction among Americans uh, upon reading Hersey's Hiroshima, some of it had to do with like, oh my God, we did this to other people, but not a lot of it. A lot of it was was just pure, you know, self-concern. You know, the U.S. knew that it wasn't going to have the nuclear monopoly forever. I mean, General Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, had initially estimated it would take the Soviets five to 20 years to get the bomb surprise. It took four. I mean, they knew that there was a time when, you know, as Einstein put it separately, no corner, no town, no city in any part of the globe was going to be safe in the atomic age, you know, already by the time Hersey was reporting, you know, it was going to be possible to have, you know, a, a missile carry a nuclear bomb. I mean, this was it. This was, the, the, it showed the true threat to humanity. And so for many Americans, again, it wasn't like, you know, oh, we, we dehumanized the Japanese. We're so sorry for what we've done to our former enemies. It was like, this isn't just Hiroshima. This could be Cleveland. This could be um, Austin, Texas. This, this could be London. What are we going to do? Mm. Um, and so it really, um, but, you know, as far as Hersey was concerned, you know, even a selfish kind of empathy was extremely important to get people to emotionally participate in, in you know, the future of atomic weapons and to, to, to wake up to, you know, the true implications of the atomic age and, and what a threat these weapons really did present yeah. to civilization. And I did note in your acknowledgements, you were talking about the fact that you had, and as you said earlier on, assistance with different linguistic backgrounds, of course, from different countries helping you with some of the research. And there was a Soviet angle as well. I wonder what was most important when you were looking into that Soviet angle and that, I guess, Cold War deterrence type situation that must have arisen post this atomic bomb being detonated. Well, I was, um, you know, nerdily ecstatic to come across the the Soviet angle for this because it hasn't really been been talked about before in in academia or journalism. And I came across a document in the New Yorker archive that indicated that the Soviets had um, sent their own quote unquote reporter from Pravda to Nagasaki to rebut the findings of, uh, of John Hersey and to downplay the bombs. And, you know, this, this Pravda reporter goes and he reports back, actually, it wasn't that bad at all. And, you know, I interviewed some fellow who, you know, survived just by jumping into a shallow ditch and he's sticking his head out of the ditch and he's watching the bomb and he still survived. I mean, this, um, the idea for them was that they were trying to get across the message to their citizens that, well, actually, the Americans greatly exaggerated, you know, the, the might of their bomb. And um, because they had a real incentive to do so, because they were at the nuclear disadvantage. The Soviets wouldn't successfully detonate their own bomb until 1949. And they um, hated Hersey's Hiroshima because they did see it as propagandistic. They saw, uh, saw it as an as a Im- implicit threat towards um, the Soviet Union. And they painted him as an American spy who was trying to, to sow panic over there. And it was only this past week that it was announced that Hersey's Hiroshima was going to be translated into Russian for the first time. It took 75 years. Wow. That's amazing. I can't believe that. Um, it does make a whole lot of sense in terms of their motivation to want to to counter that story. But yeah, it's a really fantastic that you uncovered that. It must have been really exciting with the, the inner historian in you. Oh yeah, it was a nerd dream come true. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and also, I mean, but the, when you're look, taking the step back and you're looking at the implications of that, it's the, 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 the two emergent superpowers in the post-war were both covering up what had happened in Hiroshima to their respective populations for different reasons. Mm. I couldn't, I mean, I just was such a, it was such a big story, you know, and it, it was just, it, in any case, I was extremely grateful to have, have found this, this document that pointed me down the path of it. And as you, as you mentioned, you know, I did have a really great Russian translator and researcher helping me, you know, she was based in New York and I had another uh, researcher based in um, Moscow and that, that trail could not have been followed up without them. So I'm very grateful to them. 
Mm, yeah, it is such a global story, really. And um, so many things are only available in the local archives. It's not all digitized as we would wish as historians. Oh, no. No, if only. No. <laughs> this stuff is like just still crumbling away in boxes. Just finally, you mentioned in the introduction that the world's current combined inventory of nuclear arms includes over 13,500 warheads. That's a huge number. And it seems that the arms race in a nuclear sense is only continuing and increasing in terms of the spend. What are your thoughts about that? And I guess, was that part of the reasoning or the urgency really of not just this book, but also, I guess, the 75th anniversary that we just have seen? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, look, and that, that figure is actually you know, lower than it's been in the past. I mean, previously, I think the high would, may have been 15,000 warheads globally. So th- that reduction might seem encouraging, but nobody should be encouraged. I mean, the U.S. is about to commit $1.7 trillion into arms development if um, things move forward. And that's not a conversation that anybody is having right now. I mean, every, it's everything here is COVID election. Um, it's just it's not an election issue here at the moment, and it should be. Um, there's been, you know, an alarming move towards resumption of nuclear testing, which is just insanity. There's been a withdrawal um, from the most important, in fact, almost every single one of the Cold War era arms control treaties. We have many nuclear countries, you know, right now in the world and uh, who are looking to accelerate their own arsenals again. The Bulletin for the Atomic Scientists, which has its famous doomsday clock, they have set the clock closer to midnight, i.e. nuclear apocalypse, than it has ever been since its advent in the late 1940s. Not even in 1953 was it this close to midnight. It's 100 seconds to midnight as far as they're concerned for all of the reasons I've just cited and more. Um, and the fact that it's not talked about more right now is is insanity. But it, 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 in a certain way. We're kind of where we were in late 1945 and 1946, where we have a global population that is exhausted at the moment. I mean, just, we're under a global assault by a pandemic that has ruined economies. You know, prob- we're probably going to be staring down a horrific recession, if not depression after this. I mean, lives are being lost at a rapid rate. And so, you know, do people have the capacity to take on this issue right now. I mean, the, the, the fact is, is that we don't have a choice. This issue isn't going away. And, you know, pandemics are an existential threat that are gradual. Climate change is an existential threat that is gradual. Nuclear threat is something that could wipe out everything. You know, the history of human accomplishment, I mean, all of the whole of human civilization with given our current arsenal stash, in a matter of moments. And so this really is something that needs to become a global issue again, and non-proliferation and arms control really needs to become talked about to say, to say the least again. And it was an enormous motivation for me in writing Fallout. And I'm very grateful that it's been getting the attention that it has for that reason. And just to follow up on that, has anyone really asked or examined Joe Biden or the Democrats in terms of whether they would approach things differently? I'd have to go back and look at what um, Joe Biden's declared position is on nuclear testing, but we have to believe that it's going to be more sensible than what Donald Trump is putting forward at the moment. I think that's a safe assumption to make. Leslie, it's been such a pleasure and privilege to talk to you. And um, also, I just want to say congratulations on this book, which is amazing to read. And um, it's very, very clear that you put you and your research team across many continents put a lot of time and effort into making this such a, a really nuanced and in-depth read. So congratulations and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your really careful read and for having me on the show.